Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to the Colin Man's Answer Show, episode number 103. And keeping with my structure of diving into the philosophy of law and diving into the philosophy of like U.S. legality and how the system works, today we'll be touching on some theories of law, starting with HLA Hart and John Austin, talking about the command theory and then Hart's critique of the command theory, and then we'll get into some of the critiques of the United States system with that, and then finally we'll talk about Radbrunch and Hans Kelsen's pure theory of law and, and Radbrunch's critique of pure theory of law on why Nazi legality isn't a true system and why maybe there are some problems with the United States legal system. I hope you guys enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the Colin Man's Answer Show, episode number 103. Um, in keeping with my diving into more philosophical topics, especially regarding law, uh, sooner or later I'm going to get into more like some philosophical topics about science and then therefore, but con- continuing with my ideas of um, the philo- philosophical topics of law. I, I thought today I would talk about Austin, HLA Austin, or I mean, HLA Hart and um, JL Austin, and talk about the command theory and then other legal positivist theories of law. And then I was going to get into um, the pure theory of law, which comes from, I believe, Hans Kelsen. Yeah. And then, uh, We'll get into why something like the United States and the legality of the United States might not be all that perfect. Okay. So to start, H.L.A. Hart was a legal positivist who created this new form of legal positivism, um, which critiqued John Austin's uh, command theory of law. So Austin's command theory of law is basically grounded in three different principles. The first principle is that the command or the coercion is central to law. So the coercion of the law is central to what that law is. This means that a commanding force or body is central to what constitutes as a law. Secondarily, for Austin, if it is not a command, then it is not a law. So if, it, if what is coming down on you isn't actually a coercion, or isn't actually a command, then it can't even be considered a law. This takes the first principle even farther by stating that not only are commands central to what law is, but if it isn't a command, then it cannot be a law at all. An example of this would be NATO's contract theory and how Western countries have entered into a contract with each other, but there is no coercion or command, therefore it cannot be considered law. NATO is a mutual agreement between independent sovereign states where they will defend each other upon attack. However, for Austin, this is not a law per se, because a law must be a command and no one is commanding any sovereign state to agree to be within NATO, as I just mentioned. Again, for Austin, someone must be in charge. There must be a clear and distinct transfer of commands for a law to be established. For example, there must be an individual monarch asserting commands from the top down. There also cannot be anyone higher than that monarch within Austin's command theory, and therefore the supreme authority within the law is that figurehead. Within the United States, this might be kind of weird because we don't really have a monarch, and some of you who understand the law a little bit more might say the president doesn't really have all that much authority. Our command theory under... um, 
Austin's command theory would be the Constitution. The Constitution is the binding document which has a set of commands on what to do or what you can do. So this gets into Hart's critique of Austin's command theory. And as I established previously, Hart was critiquing Austin's command theory when he was writing, and therefore a lot of his legal positivism comes from the place of opposition to the, man, to the command theory rather than an individual idea of such. For starters, Hart thought that the law was much more than an expression of the coercion of a population by a powerful elite. Think about that for a second again. Hart did not necessarily think that the law was much more, or he thought that the law was much more than an expression of the coercion of a population by a powerful elite. Hart did not believe that the law was merely coercion and instead believed that Austin fundamentally misinterpreted the distinction between being obliged or being forced to obey and being placed under an obligation to obey. So a lot of this critique is going to be surrounding why Austin or why Hart believes that Austin fundamentally misinterpreted the distinction between being forced to obey something and being placed under obligation to obey something. And there is a distinction in language. And one of the things you're going to find when you're studying the philosophy of law, when you're studying law more and more, is that language matters when you're when you're enacting a decree or when you're enacting a um a new statute or law, the language matters. They use good lawyers and good lawmakers use language as a tool of, I don't want to say misguidedness, but kind of like they use a tool to misinterpret what people are going to read it as and what it actually is because they're actually extremely intelligent and they know that the common person who's reading it won't understand what they're actually saying. This is why they jam in what they actually want in a doctrine like the green, the, the new green deal, right? Right. We all think like, Oh yeah, we should be moving green except they're jamming down democratic policy down everyone's throats. Right. This is why they do that is because they use language as a tool to be manipulated, not as a tool to make more understanding, but I digress. The distinction between being obliged and being under obligation starts like this. Being obliged to do something is what Austin would call being compelled. So being obliged is being compelled or being coerced. For Hart, being obliged is when there is no other way anything could have been possible or could have been possibly done. So being obliged means you have to do it because you're being coerced to the extent where you have to do it. In contrast, however, being under an obligation is more akin to being under the debt of someone. When one is under an obligation, they have a duty to perform. For Hart as well, law has a lot to do with the internalization of law. So when you, when you have a debt to pay, when you're under an obligation, it's as if you don't have to do it. It's, it it's not as if you're being coerced as in you cannot get out of it at all, but it's like you have an obligation to do it. You are you have a duty to perform the task because you're in someone's debt. And for heart, this comes from the internalization of law. And so what internalization is, internalization is an act that a civilian subconsciously does 
where their actions are determined by the laws with which they live by. Therefore, laws in this manner are a lot like habits where a routine occurs subconsciously, and therefore one does not think about breaking the law just as one does not thinking about eating lunch. I know that's very hard to understand or to get your mind to wrap around. How is law like a habit? How can we internalize laws if laws are just merely... If laws are just merely coercion, but that's the point. Laws are not just merely coercion. And what Hart believes is a lot of the a lot of the reason we act in specific ways is because we internalize what we believe the law to be. So in this case, civilians believe they have a duty to act lawfully because the law has been internalized by them so much that it is now a part of their mental state. They couldn't escape the law if they wanted to because it is ingrained. In their psyche. For the internalization of law, it is as if from birth we are born into a society, and we'll say the United States because that's where I'm from. You're born into the United States, and I'm born, I was born in Las Vegas, Nevada. So I'm born in Las Vegas, and I'm confined to the laws of the land. You internalize the, the norms and the rules of society just as if you internalize your daily habits. I don't think about stopping at a red light just as though – actually, it's about because people do run red lights, and that's actually – I don't – even if I think about running the red light, I – don't there's something in me that makes my heart race when i'm about to or makes me want to stop because of the I, this internalization of the law so when i'm internalizing the law the reason that your heart flutters is because you know the consequence of the law and you know what the law is the law says you have to stop at a red light and so you know that and maybe it is a fear that you'll get pulled over and that you'll have a a um a citation placed on your record. But it's also the fact that you've internalized the law so much that you don't even think about it. Most days, if you're not in a rush, you just stop at the red light. You might be pissed, but you stop at the red light. And most times you won't just run a red light. You'll run it if it's like yellow and about to be red, and that's considered running a red light, but you won't run the red light if it's actually red. If you come up on a red light, no one in their right mind's going through. And maybe that is because you don't want to get injured, but a lot of it is because you've internalized these arms or I guess like a stop sign, right? There's nobody at the four corners. You stop at the stop sign because you've internalized the law so much. And, and Hart would say that this internalization is what happens with all laws. It's not just that you're being forced to do something or to obey the law. It's that you've internalized it since birth so much that it's now a part of your mental state and you act as though it's like a habit. And so for Hart, Laws are broken up into two subcategories, primary and secondary rules. So primary rules are the negative laws, rules that command one not to do something. For example, do not murder is an example of a primary rule. That's an easy one. So do not murder. That's an example of a primary rule. It's a negative law or something that takes something away from you. It commands you to not do something. Secondary rules, however, are anything that controls the operation of those primary rules. 
They are, in an instance, the rules about the rules. In the case where the primary rule is do not murder, the secondary rules would be the separating degrees with which constitutes what a murder is or the trial one must go through in order to be convicted of murder and so on. The secondary rules for heart are there to manage the primary rules because of the complexity of society. The secondary rules are the manners with which society understands the primary rules. This is where the rule of recognition comes into play. For Hart, all primary rules are grounded in the rule of recognition. The rule of recognition is the one primary rule that everyone points to and says that's where all the laws rules and regulations for our society come from. When we look at the United States society, that rule of recognition would be the Constitution. And the recognition of the legitimacy of that Constitution is our grounding body. We recognize the Constitution as the point to which all of our laws, rules, and regulations come from. And that is important for understanding why we follow law. We must recognize law as legitimate or having a starting primary spot or else all laws would not be able to be followed. So one might be asking the question of how a society gets to a point where a formalized written legal system or constitution is necessary to bind people together. And the answer to that lies within Hobbes's state of nature. So Hobbes was a philosopher who had a lot of influence on the founding fathers. And for Hobbes, the state of nature is chaos. Hobbes believes that the state of nature for humans is an anarchic society where people are murdered, raped, and harmed for the benefit of the other human due to the fact that humans have rights of nature. For Hobbes, humans are inherently harmful in their state of nature, and therefore a societal state or government is necessary so that everything isn't pure anarchy all the time. So Hobbes believes that people are not inherently good and that if we let people be free to who they are, they're actually murderous, evil human beings who will do anything to satisfy their selfish desires and needs. So for Hart. The reason that the rule of recognition is necessary is because people do not want to live in the state of nature or the state of anarchic chaos. They actually want peace. Therefore, in order to get peace, one must give up some of the rights of nature and enter into a sort of social contract where you create a person or body of people who are perceived as above the law and who have the power to create and enforce laws which are designed to keep the peace. For Hart, the sovereign is always in the state of nature, and therefore they always have the power of ultimate freedom and ultimate authority. 
the reason we come together to live in society and become bound by law and bound by documents is because of the fact we don't want to live in chaos. We want to live freely. We want people to have rights. We want people to be innovative. We don't want people to be pillaged, raped, and murdered. And so for Hart, because of that, we give up some of our freedoms to a body that is sovereign and which keeps them in the state of nature. So they are ultimately free and they can necessarily do whatever they want. But in our case, it is an inanimate object. So the, the, the sovereign body of our, of our land. And this is where some of the problems with us legality come in is that we didn't give ultimate sovereignty up to a person or people who can make decisions. We gave it up to a, binding document which is to be read and interpreted in a multitude number of ways and so the only people who are allowed to interpret it are nine unelected justices who have differing opinions and the people who are sitting next to them and so when you give ultimate sovereignty to an inanimate object this is bound to happen because people are bound to twist and manipulate that inanimate object in ways that you can't imagine so once some of the rights are given to the ultimate authority, the rule recognition has been established. However, when there is no formal or written body which explains those rules, then over time as a society, when it becomes ever more complex, it will be increasingly more difficult to rely on informal, unwritten rules. This is due to the fact that if a society only has informal rules, then how can that society distinguish between what rules are after a complex question after question? So if a society has no formal rules, how will a society distinguish between what the rules are from complex question after complex question? If there's nothing written and we have someone smacking someone with a car on accident and getting into a motor accident and causing the death of someone. Yet all we know is that you can't murder that guy's going away for the amount of time as me. Who's murdered eight people because I wanted to. This is where something like the constitution or a written body of rules lies. It is created so that formal rules can be established and enhanced over time, and so that from birth, one is to recognize the ultimate authority, live in peace, and establish uniformity from it. However, one of the consequences, at least for heart, is that you end up internalizing, internalizing these legal norms from birth. So one of the consequences of having a written body that we all have to conform to is that you're going to internalize them. And a part of who you are is going to be the internalization of the law of the constitution. And like I said before, we have differing interpretations of what that means. And that's why you get two parties of people who are internalizing different norms because they believe it says one thing that the other side believes it doesn't say. On to Furler and Radbrunch. 
This is a fun one. I'm having fun. I promise this actually matters to me, at least. If you guys don't want to listen to this, I don't give a fuck. You guys can go skip it. Wait till day of the day, Wednesday, Friday. I'm having Kenan Hutchinson on, the virologist. So stay tuned. So Hans Kelsen was a 19th and 20th century political philosopher who came up with the idea of the pure theory of law. This pure theory of law defines law as a system of coercive norms created by the state that rests on the validity of a generally accepted ground norm or basic norm, such as the supremacy of the Constitution. So the pure theory of law basically means that law is a system of coercive norms that is created by a state body that rests on the validity of a basic norm, which is that we believe that the Constitution is supreme. Those who subscribe to the pure theory of law seem to take an emotivist approach towards moral ideals in that pure theorists believe that morality is just subjective expressions of feelings grounded in irrational emotion rather than a rational reflection and hence entirely unsuitable for any kind of legal analysis. So people who uh, subscribe to the purity of law also subscribe to the separation thesis. And because of that, I said this in, the, in episode 101, but if you guys need to know what that means, it means that morality and law are separated. That's what the separation thesis says. And so people who believe in the purity of law also believe that morality is just they take the um they take the separation thesis to an extreme and they say that morality is just our sub- subjective expressions of feelings which are grounded in irrational emotion i have a strong feeling that people who subscribe to pure theory law believe that one day we could create a robot who understands the law better than anyone and subscribes or takes the emotion completely out of it and i think they believe that emotion is just irrational it's irrational thoughts that humans have like anger and sadness which is you can't have those attached to law because that has no place with law which is just fucking absurd but whatever so that's the pure theory of law however adding on to this kelson has a positivist way of looking at the law On top of this, yeah, Kelson's positive way of looking at the law. So this pure theory of law from Kelson and legality, he believes law and legality is subjected to the separation thesis due to the fact that the pure theory of law strives to purify law from morality in such a way that creates a scientific version of law itself. So pure theories. The pure theory of law wants to separate morality so far that it purifies law in a way that we can just look at it scientifically. This becomes a problem with regards to what a valid legal system is. This is due to the fact that something akin to Nazism can be rationalized through the pure theory of law or for, through the pure theorist notion of legal validity. 
Many men have taken to undermining Kelson's pure theory of law from this direct approach, two of whom being Gustav Radbrunch and Lon L. Fuller. So background, or that was just a little bit of background before I get into why something like the purity of law cannot be true. Basically, the purity of law just says that one day we'll be able to look at law from the point of view that takes emotion and morality away from it so far to an extent that we just understand legality. However, people disagree with that because then any evil systems of law can be rationalized and be legally valid if you do that. And we can't have that. And so to to separate morality and the law to such an extent that we just have law, it opens the door for Nazism and it opens the door for evil, evil acts of men. So the first critique of this pure theory of law, and I promise this is going to get into why something like the United States is maybe not valid, um, comes from the intolerability thesis. As I stated earlier, one of the men, one of the men who challenged Kelson's pure theory of law was Gustav Radbrunch, and this was through his intolerability thesis. So Gustav believed that law is defined by and depends upon moral values. Therefore, in such a system, there is no absolutes. Thus, the concepts of right and justice are not absolute, but are relative to time and place and to the values of the parties in a given legal proceeding. So, under the intolerability thesis, a legal system should ultimately give preference to a legal positivist framework up until the conflict with justice. Because Gustav Radbrunch is trying to reconcile positivism with the idea of minimal natural law, he is inherently refuting Kelsen's theory of legal validity. I know that's a lot of mumbo jumbo legal legality philosophy. Basically, Gustav Radbunch is trying to connect a minimal natural law, which means that there's some parts of law that come from nature, while also trying to say that, but at the forefront, we should take morality out of it and, 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 um, Make sure I got this right. Sorry. Yeah, okay. So basically these men, he wants to connect that a minimal amount of law comes from nature and not from men. But he also wants to say that, but at the forefront, any and all laws are nothing more and nothing less than simply the expression of the will of whatever authority created them. So at some level, Radbrunch wants to connect the idea that a legal system gets its validity from at the forefront or at the, at the top. We need to understand that a society creates the framework of the law. However, at some point when it's becoming intolerable then some minimal some some laws that come from nature must ad, be adhered to like don't throw people don't commit genocide against a persons or places or things i guess not things but persons 
So for Radbrunch, there must be some higher justice or law that exists, which is where the idea of minimal natural law comes into play. So there must be some higher justice than just what a legal system in a society creates. So due to this fact, for Radbrunch, law is defined by and depends on moral values. Therefore, something like Nazism is not and cannot be considered legally valid. For Radbrunch, a legal system should follow a positivist framework like the separation thesis up until the point of injustice and immorality. However, as soon as either comes into play, like in the case of Nazi Germany, it is not valid law any longer and therefore should not be followed. Radbrunch, unlike Kelsen, is committed to paying attention to norms, which he says positivists forget to do. So positivists like to say anything that is created within a society, legally speaking, is valid. However, Radbrunch is saying that we can't just forget human norms. And there is some morality in what those human norms, and therefore those have to come from a higher power. And he believes that people who subscribe to the pure theory of law tend to take this out. So that's Radbrunch and his critique. The next critique comes from Long L. Fuller, and it deals with secular natural law theory. Lionel Fuller believes that legal morality is natural and comes in part from human sense of reason and the other from the social contract. Unlike Radrunch, Fuller is uninterested in the higher law or justice and says that higher law is mythological. Methodological. In contrast, Fuller believes that law is like many things, a skill that can be acquired over time. For Fuller, law is like carpentry. There are beginners, journeymen, and masters, and that the good legal systems are all designed by what he calls skilled persons. So good legal systems are designed by masters. Fuller believes that moral values are written into the very idea of law. Therefore, he believes that this internal morality is exactly what causes obedience to the law itself and not vice versa. Fuller rejects a pure theorist view of law because for him, the violation for the basic procedural principles which legal systems are rested upon that occurs reduces the validity of a legal system in proportion to the extent of these violations. The problem then with something like Nazi legality comes that the Nazi legal system has violated the basic moral procedural principles extensively and therefore reduced the Nazi legal validity immensely. All of this put together for Fuller creates the distinction between legal moral system and a non-legal Nazi system or non-legal immoral system. So looking at both Radbrunch and Fuller's ideas, we can start to understand how some problems might arise for the United States legal system. So for starters, Radbrunch, for Radbrunch, if the validity of a legal system relies on the nation's ability to be just, how can a system that is founded in systematic racism, oppression, and classism truly be considered valid? I said valid, didn't I? Valid. If, like the intolerability thesis states, society should follow a positivist framework up until the conflict with justice, 
then clearly the United States system could be deemed invalid by some. This question of what is true, what a truly just nation looks like creates problems for Western nations like the United States and comes from Radbrunch's theory of law. When there are structural principles that uphold racism and classism, like those within the United States, how, under Radbrunch's theory of law, how can the United States be just or a good system or a valid system even? Some might argue that it isn't. I think a lot of people, especially my age, would argue that it isn't. I digress. Like Radbrunch, Fuller's theory also seems to nudge at the validity of a legal system like the United States. For example, under Fuller's carpentry metaphor, it seems as though the master law theorists who know the ins and the outs of the legal system seem to also know how to break the rules. An example of this in the United States is how congressmen make millions of dollars insider trading off of legislation that they themselves pass. It seems a bit odd that the only people allowed to break the rules within the society are in fact the ones themselves who create the rules. Under this assumption, it doesn't seem like the U.S. system is valid and that it is violating procedural principles at such a level that it should reduce the system's validity down to almost none. It seems as though the United States has a lot of problems currently, right? And as we dive more into the philosophy of law, we can see how each specific area of philosophical applications of law, how they each fit within the United States but also they each kind of undermine the validity of what the United States legal system looks like. And so what I'm trying to figure out with doing this series, I guess, in this new season is, is there a system we can turn to that will change everything for the better? Or is every other system even worse than the United States one? That's a tough question, and I am nowhere smart enough to answer it. So once again, this has been Colin Demand's Answers. Thank you guys for tuning in. Stay tuned on Friday for the episode three, episode three with me, the virologist, Kenan Hutchinson. There'll be COVID updates, vaccine updates, and a lot more. Thank you guys again. I will see you guys on Friday.